This episode is brought to you by the members and donors of the Best of the Left podcast. For more details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Saturday Night Live, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, The Onion Radio News, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, and The Colbert Report. that Wall Street firms, including Goldman Sachs, received the swine flu vaccines for their employees from the Center for Disease Control, despite massive shortages of the vaccine nationwide. Which brings us to a segment we like to call, Really? With Steph and Amy. you're an institution and like all institutions you need vaccines but before schools and hospitals do you not know that you currently have a serious pr problem i mean really i know that to you guys swine flu is almost as terrifying as drinking tap water or sending your kids to public school but really really can you not read how mad people are at you when most people saw the headline goldman sachs gets swine flu vaccine they were super happy until they saw the word vaccine <laughs> really your job is to predict the future so the next time someone offers you medicine before they give it to pregnant ladies, see if you can predict how well that's going to go down. I mean, really. Really. And really, you do realize that as bankers, you should try to distance yourselves from the word swine. Yeah. Have you never seen an editorial cartoon? Pig in a top hat, pockets full of money, making it way too easy, guys. Really. Really. And by the way, are flu shots like bonuses now? Are you worried that if you don't give them to your top people, they'll leave? Where are they going to go? I don't even watch the news, but no one is hiring. Really. Really. Also, just a tip, if you're trying to convince people that you care about things other than money, may I suggest removing the words gold and sack from your name? Really? Also, Centers for Disease Control, you sent the vaccine to Wall Street before schools and hospitals? Really? Were you worried the swine flu might spread to the Hamptons and St. Bart's? These are the least contagious people in the world. They don't even touch their own car door handles. I mean, really? Really? So really, CDC, the next time you want to give something to Goldman that should be going to students, how about an economics textbook or a nuggie? Yeah, really. Give yourself a big fat nuggie, Goldman Sachs. Or a wet willy, really. Yeah, really. Really. Come on.
If there is one thing that we mere mortals have learned in the last year of the financial catastrophe in the United States, it's that it's good to be Goldman Sachs. George W. Bush's Treasury Secretary was Hank Paulson, former CEO of Goldman Sachs. Under Paulson, when Wall Street started exploding, it was decided that two of Goldman's biggest competitors, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, would be allowed to fail. Meanwhile, AIG would be rescued, which was happy news for Goldman Sachs, since AIG owed Goldman a ton of money. When the Troubled Assets Relief Program, the TARP program, was established, former Goldman CEO and Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson tapped another Goldman employee to be in charge of it. When President Obama replaced Mr. Paulson at Treasury with Tim Geithner, Mr. Geithner promptly chose a chief of staff who had been a lobbyist for Goldman Sachs. In March, President Obama picked another Goldman veteran to head up the very important Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Meanwhile, it only took Goldman itself a year to turn its $70 billion in taxpayer generosity from last year into a $3 billion quarterly profit right now. And its bonus pool for its executives has never looked fatter. The cherry on top is news today that the Securities and Exchange Commission, the supposed top cop on Wall Street, who missed everything from the subprime mortgage scam to Bernie Madoff, has just named a new chief operating officer of its enforcement division, a new top cop to keep Wall Street in line. His name is Adam Storch. He's 29, and he comes from Goldman Sachs. Surprised? Joining us now, the man once known as the real sheriff of Wall Street, former governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer. Governor, thanks for coming in tonight. Pleasure to be here. 29. Um, I'm, I'm feeling very old right now. <laughs> I'm feeling old right now. <laughs> I, I'm, am I making too much of Goldman's influence in Washington? Is this so, no? No, no you, you are not. This is a real problem. It is a problem not just because it is Goldman vis-a-vis Citibank or Morgan Stanley or any of the other investment banks. It's because Wall Street controls the Treasury Department. If you look at the Geithner logs, if you look who does he speak to? Who does he listen to? It is exclusively the voice of Wall Street. Now, Goldman thinks it's preeminent. They're not as smart as they think they are. They make money because they, are, they dominate that street through a lot of different mechanisms, some of which they should not be proud of. But the problem is Tim Geithner doesn't call the Consumer Federation of America with the same frequency that he calls Goldman Sachs. Goldman has the ear of everybody. Their money has bought access. You know, the joke running around the street was that Goldman was going to do an LBO for the Treasury Department. They said, we're in the same department. We print money, they print money, we can come together, save everybody, you know, everybody will come out ahead. This aside, is a real problem. Aside from the Consumer Federation of America, who are the other stakeholders who Treasury should be listening to as much as they're listening well, to Goldman? Other enforcement agencies. I can tell you that the Treasury Department does not speak. Given that the SEC, the OCC, the OTS, the FDIC, all of them failed, how many times has the Treasury Department called the state attorneys general? Now, I'm biased. That's where I was. I thought we made some good cases. Did they ever pick up the phone and say, what do you think? Has Geithner ever reached out to that universe of people and say, what are we missing? What is going on in the street? Have they spoken to those who represent workers to say, how do we create jobs? Small businesses, small business owners. We, we went through an era where we, we went through the financialization of our economy. All we did was the razzle-dazzle of Wall Street, and it killed us. We didn't make things. We didn't invest in the intellectual capital that we needed. I would rather he talk to Silicon Valley than Wall Street. Silicon Valley 
Valley is creative, intellectual genesis where they create the next generation of companies. Wall Street, they move money back and forth. They bid things up akin to the tulip bulbs back in, in Holland in 1600, and they think they're creating value. It's fictitious. What we need is people who create value. That's not Wall Street. When we look at not only re-regulating Wall Street, but when we look at recreating our economy in a way that this doesn't have, keep, just keep right. happening, are we building smart enough, tough enough, tough enough, empowered enough cops? No. The no. enforcement system isn't no, good. No, no, Rachel, I may be dead wrong about this, but I think that we've been rearranging the decks on the, on the uh, Titanic. Everybody knows the Peter Principle. That you get promoted to the point of your incompetence. I think yeah. Washington, we'd have the Peter Principle on steroids. The people who were at the top of the regulatory agencies who completely failed created the crisis are now using this very same crisis they created to argue for more power for themselves. It is the Peter Principle on steroids. The people who were in charge of these groups and agencies are still there. I hate to say it, they are the very ones, and I don't mean to pick on Tim Geithner, decent guy, I think he's dead wrong about most of what he's doing, but Tim Geithner was in charge of the New York Fed during the entire period that this bubble was created. He testified that he had never been a regulator, a more aberrant statement that's hard to imagine, yeah. yet he is not. So I, I think we are not yet solving the problem. We have enough power if people have the will to use it. And the fact that when you see these laws being winnowed down, when you see agencies still not asking the hard questions, too big to fail is still there. Too big to fail has not been confronted. The banks are not lending. We have socialized risk, privatized gain. None of that has changed. The banks are still using all the taxpayer money to create proprietary trading funds. No wonder Goldman makes $3 billion. You give them money for free. They go in to use all that liquidity to pump up an equities market so they get a return on the free money. Of course they do well. Anybody could do well in that context. We have not said to them, do something that helps the economy. The one person down there on a regulatory side, who isn't unfortunately where he should be, who, who gets it is Paul Volcker. Hmm. Paul Volcker, who testified a couple weeks ago saying the banks should not be doing the sorts of things they're doing with guaranteed deposits, with federal assistance. They want proprietary trading. They want hedge funds. Let them go off and do that on their own. But if we give them the money, make sure they use it for reasons that will really boost our economy. It's not happening. Still got a fox in the hen house problem. And yep. not only do we need to get the foxes out of there, we need to come up with a plan to defend the hen house. Absolutely. Not yet done. A guy who's been on the warpath is Dylan Radigan on MSNBC. Now he's going to take on this corporatist culture. I've talked about it. He's written about it before as well. We, actually, we came out with articles. I think I'm maybe on the same exact day uh, on this same topic. So apparently we're on the same wavelength. And uh, and he's you know going after these guys more and more. And he's one of the few guys uh, in the mainstream media right now um, where. 
they discuss the real motivations of the politicians and how they're getting paid off by the lobbyists. Now, it, we put a spotlight on it because it happens so infrequently. And to the point now when I see Radigan's show on this, and I've seen now a number of times that he's uh, done the same thing, I think he might be even handling it better than the print journalists. Because every print journalist article I see talks about how the senators want this or that because they're conservative or they're moderate or they're centrist. But they don't mention the lobbyists at all as to what their motivations would be. And those are terrible articles because they're leaving out the real motivations of the politicians. Well, Radigan uh, handles that. Now, as you watch this video, look at what he calls, uh, what I, well, I call him corporatist. Look at what he calls him. It's much harsher. It's interesting. Let's go to clip number nine here. Uh, helping us identify corporate communism in our country that is a cancer on our nation. Uh, the folks at the Sunlight Foundation, Jake Brewer, uh, a little sunlight's a, good, a, a very powerful thing for those who like to use money to steal from us. Uh, Sheila Krumholtz, Executive Director for the Center of Responsive Politics, and its website, OpenSecrets.org, which is where we're able to find out who is getting bought off by who. And then you can see here, of course, Jonathan and Karen. Jake, I will begin with you. Uh, walk us through how it is that the lobbyists are controlling this process. Well, the thing with the lobbyists is that they're they're not able, uh, we're not able to track the real influence that they're having, at least we weren't until last week, and what we were able to find is that they're actually coming together to form these clusters of influence, and so uh, along with Sheila and her team at the Center for Responsive Politics, we're able to find that lobbyists are coming together in, in large numbers and giving large sums of money that is actually having much, much more influence than we were originally able to track, and again, we're running up into a case where the uh, we have a 19th century government process or practically so, coming up to a 21st century citizenry that demands this type of, of accountability and transparency, and we're now able to track that uh, through through new investigation that we've able to, been able to uncover. So, um, yeah, Sheila, how does this work? In other words, uh, if I understand correctly, lobbyists are actually giving their own money, and then if I'm a lobbying firm that has a lot of lobbyists, I just go to Karen and all, all the other lobbyists that I work with and say, everybody give as a syndicate uh, to Max Bach to make sure that the corporate communists don't have to compete uh, while everybody else in this country does have to compete. For example, again, preventing competition uh, so that our health care companies can continue to take money without actually having any real competition. Well, it's interesting. This research, I think, puts a fine point on the connections, the, how the lobbyist contributions really echo and complement those of their clients. It, do, it isn't a smoking gun, however. I should say that there is no proof of coordination just by the fact that there are uh, uh, all of these contributions coming from and, and really representing the same sources. We don't know if it was raised through a fundraiser or if it was raised by the client or by the lobbyist. We don't know the direction and the motivation necessarily, but we can say that these lobbyists who are marching up to Capitol Hill to lobby on behalf of their clients have a big dollar sign on their back. They represent so much money from themselves, their colleagues, their family members, and their clients. Well, politically speaking, though, Dylan, too, I mean, you have to ask yourself, you look at the, the composition of the committees, you look at the, the dollar donations that they're getting, this is how business is done in Washington, this is how political compromise gets right. made in Washington. Maybe we'll get a, a little bit of change, but not right. so much change, and that's sort of what we're seeing, I think, with Biden. Jake, the more, the more I learn and, and see this, I, the more I suspect we don't have a two-party system, but we have a one-party system uh, where it's those who have the money to control Democrats and Republicans to ensure they don't have to compete, they get 
tax loopholes, et cetera, and then everybody else that gets screwed. Is that basically uh, how this country is set up right now? <laughs> Increasingly, that's the way it starts to look, doesn't it? I mean, I think the, the problem here, too, is that we're just simply not able to track who is having the real influence on this bill, or at least we haven't been. And so there's, there's a real onus now on Congress to release more information about who is having that, that influence on them, and so that w when it comes time for us as a citizenry, citizenry who, who sent them to Washington to really represent us around these truly vital and important issues to this country, that we're able to track who is, in fact, influencing them. This is, that's what it's really about, yeah. money and influence, and, and we're now for the first time starting to, to see who is actually having that uh, with numbers and dollar signs uh, th through this new work. Man, you know, I don't know where Dylan Radigan comes from on the political spectrum. I literally don't. I don't know if he's from the right or if he's the left. I don't know if he's a former Republican or a Democrat or if he was a former Republican or a former Democrat. I have no idea. I know he used to be on CNBC. And, uh, you know, he parted ways with them, and now I'm glad he did, because this is the kind of stuff they would never allow on CNBC, even though they're, of course, you know, uh, under the same umbrella of MSNBC. They do different programming over there. And challenging the corporations and calling them corporate communists, <laughs> that's not going to fly at CNBC. And, but he's entirely right. I mean, that's harsh language, but I like that kind of language, because that is what they are. They're, as I've explained many times, and I got a blog up on it today on our website, on theyoungturks.com. I even did a poll on it, on AOL's hot seat. Uh, they're corporatists, and they're not, they're the opposite of capitalists, in, because capitalists want free markets, and they want choice for the consumer, and they want competition. These corporations, yes, they're a, a, a byproduct of capitalism, an offspring of capitalism, if you will, but once they're born, they have the Oedipus complex. They want to kill capitalism. They don't want you to have choices. They don't want there to be real competition. They want to snuff out the competition. Now, that's normal. I get how that works. The problem is when these corporate, what corporatists, or as Radigan calls them, the corporate communists, capture the government, and then they use the government to kill off their competition. So, and that's the situation we have now, where they funnel in a lot of money through these lobbyists to buy politicians on both sides, on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. And, and so they set up a system where, you know, in effect, uh, right now in the healthcare industry, there's very little competition. And if you try to offer up a public option as competition, they go ballistic. They've tried throwing every weapon they have in their arsenal to try to kill the public option because, God forbid, they should have competition. Now, look, if you say, hey, you know what, the government shouldn't be in that business. Other private companies should be giving them competition. I don't disagree with you there, okay? But that's not the situation we're in because the government has already been captured. Now, let me explain what I mean by that real quick. It, look, on a state-by-state -state level uh, basis, um, they only allow certain uh, corporations in that sphere, okay? Now, if they opened up every state to every insurance company in the country, then you might more have more healthy competition where premiums get lowered. And that's a proposal I'm definitely willing to listen to. That might be an interesting way of bringing down costs and introducing competition. But of course, the healthcare companies don't want that, and the politicians are helping them to avoid that. Now, in a situation where you don't have that kind of private competition, well, then we don't have a choice. Then we have to inject some sort of public competition. And look, but that public option is like another company in essence. So, because you have to pay premiums into it, it is not subsidized, it's not based on taxpayer money. So if it can't compete, it's just gonna die off. It forces the other companies to compete more effectively. And if you weren't a corporate communist, you'd be in favor of it. If you were a capitalist, you'd be in favor of it.
But these corporations have no such interest. They just want to limit their competition, and that's why Radigan calls them communists. And it's an interesting choice of words, but not a bad one. Bill Van Auken writing on the 21st of October 2009, under growing conditions, under conditions of growing unemployment and deepening social misery for working people throughout the U.S., President Barack Obama flew into New York City Tuesday to raise millions of dollars in campaign donations from America's financial elite. He was expected to clear at least $3 million, largely from a Manhattan bash with an entry fee of $30,400 per couple, the maximum contribution allowed by law. According to the L.A. Times, four of the seven co-chairs of the event and about a third of the guests come from the big banks and Wall Street. Behind all the rhetoric about change, this is Obama's most important constituency. In his run for the presidency in 2008, he captured the lion's share of donations from Wall Street taking in $15 million from securities and investment firms, $3 million from commercial banks, and $6 million from other financial institutions. John McCain didn't come close. So here we have, tragically, a, an, a, an administration that is beholden to the big banks, that is stocked with people from these big banks. And it turns out, as Matt Taibbi is documenting, these big banks are the predators in our modern system. I mean, this is really the big picture. This, this is the thing that we all need to be looking at this. The, 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 the big picture here is that the the government itself is a captive of this industry. Now, in Europe, where it is illegal for or largely illegal for the kind of campaign contributions, the kind of legalized bribery that we have here in the United States. This is illegal in Europe, in, in virtually all the European countries. And uh, in those countries, instead of what we're seeing here, which is, well, you know, okay, we'll uh, bail out the banks and, uh, you know, people with mortgages. And, I, and I'm not saying this to trash the Obama administration. This, these guys are operating within a system that is deeply fraught, flawed and broken. In Europe, they don't have to deal with that. And that's why the European Commission was able yesterday to say to ING, you're going to have to break up. This big corporation, this, the, you know, the, the uh, AIG of Europe, ING, uh, it was just told, hey, you know, sell off your insurance division, sell off your U.S. banking division. You can't be that big. Because we had to bail you out in order to get you that, in order to keep you, you know, get you through the crisis. Ain't going to happen again. Now, the fact of the matter is that Chris Dodd is talking about legislation and, excuse me, Barney Frank is talking about legislation to do uh, something very similar to that right now in the U.S. 
But the problem Barney Frank is going to have, and, and you'll find this in, in today's New York Times and all the other stories about this, this bill that Barney Frank is putting together, is that this bill that he's putting together, which would say basically no more too big to fail, and we're going to start breaking these, these banks up and we're going to start charging them the cost of bailing them out and things like that, um, some of the exact same ways of looking that we were looking at General Motors with a lot of pressure from the Republicans. You know, okay, if, you, if you're going to declare bankruptcy, if you want our help, you're going to have to, you know, fire a bunch of employees, you're going to have to cut benefits, you're going to, there's going to have to be some pain. That's not happening for the banks. Bear Stearns, $32 billion in bonuses. So the problem is not that the Obama administration has, or the President Obama has stacked or stocked the Treasury Department and his financial advisors with people who are beholden to and the creatures of Wall Street, the, the Geithners of the world, the Summerses of the world, the, the Rubens of the world, although Rubens out of the administration, but, you know, and back in private banking, but was uh, very big in the Clinton administration. It's not that. That's a symptom of the problem. The problem, you know, that's like, it, it looks like that's the problem, but that's really just a symptom. The problem, the underlying problem, is that we have a, a campaign financing system in the United States that is woefully broken, terribly and tragically broken. And that's why you've got, quote, conservative Democrats and even many Republicans who are, for example, working aggressively and actively against health care reform. Why? Because they're getting money from the insurance industry. Medicare Part D. Billy Towson shepherded that thing through, through uh, the House of Representatives and then went off to a $2 million a year job with pharma. In most European countries, if you tried doing that in France, he'd go to prison. And frankly, I think in the United States, somebody who does that should go to prison. We have a system that is so badly broken. The, uh, in Matt Taibbi's piece in the, in the Rolling Stone, he points out that back in 2005, as naked short selling was really exploding, and we were seeing this, this uh, and much of his article is about naked shorts and how they work, and, and, and naked short selling is, you know, when you, when you uh, bet against a company, you're supposed to bet with borrowed stock and, or stock that you own. Either you own it or you borrow it. But naked short selling is when you bet against a company. In other words, you promise to, to buy their stock at a lower price in the future. You bet against a company, and, and, the, the, uh, and the bet has nothing behind it. It's a lie. And he talks about how Bear Stearns was brought down by naked shorts and, and, and the attack on Lehman with naked shorts and, and you know, that, that, that led to the merger. All of this stuff, in 2005, there was an attempt by Congress to, to regulate this. And instead of being a law, instead of even being a rule, it became a recommendation. Why? Because the Bush administration was as, as uh, full of Wall Street money as the Obama administration is, as every administration is. It's not that we have corrupt politicians, it's that we have a corrupt system. Now, I would argue there were a lot of corrupt politicians in the Bush administration. And I got questions about a couple in the Obama administration, but by and large, I think that they're doing a pretty good job. But consider the water in which they're swimming. So sad now, no way out. The bottom of despair. Hormones raging, going crazy. Is 
The global economy faces a new threat from below. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The world's economists express grave concern today as an enormous tentacle emerged from the depths and latched onto the sinking global economy, threatening to drag it beneath the surface to certain doom. UN economist and Leviathan hunter Dr. Aaron Metzer calls for a bold course of action. And we, we have recommended that we strike um, the derivatives eating monster right in its foul heart. At the time of this report, a special craft is being prepared to deliver a reported $773 billion payload into the creature's gaping maw, an attempt which may, I repeat, may buy precious time. May God be with us. Doyle Redland for the Unions Radio. Last night, you know, I had a million questions for John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, and Terry Jones from Monty Python's Flying Circus, most of them fan questions. But Terry Gilliam had one question for me. How come that Colin Powell interview about the terror industrial complex didn't become a bigger story? Our number one story, what Colin Powell interview about the terror industrial complex? In a 2007 interview with GQ magazine, the former Secretary of State, strikingly honest, outlined an entire aspect of the nexus of politics and terror. And even in this day of instant information, this modern-day version of President Eisenhower's farewell address and his warning about a military-industrial complex barely made a dent in the mainstream media, possibly because, in effect, Powell buried his own lead. In that interview that ran in October 2007's issue of GQ, he said he was, quote, sorry that he gave the world the wrong information at the UN. The information regarding the threat that Iraq supposedly posed that led us to war. We reported Powell's admission on this program the week of September 10th, 2007, and we excerpted some of Powell's remarks to GQ. What is the greatest threat facing us now? People will say it's terrorism. But are there any terrorists in the world who can change the American way of life or our political system? No. Can they knock down a building? Yes. Can they kill somebody? Yes. But can they change us? No. Only we can change ourselves. So what is the great threat we are facing? But perhaps if we had all just dug a little deeper into that article, we would have noticed that Powell went a little further. The only thing that can really destroy us is us. We shouldn't do it to ourselves, and we shouldn't use fear for political purposes, scaring people to death so they will vote for you, or scaring people to death so that we create a terror industrial complex. 
Powell, of course, borrowing that phrase, first used by President Eisenhower in 1961. In his farewell address to the nation, the president warned of the military-industrial complex, a concept that perhaps he knew something about, considering that prior to being president, he was a five-star general in the Army during World War II. In the councils of government, he said, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Shortly after Powell's comments to GQ were published, he gave a speech at the University of Oklahoma. The reporters at OU's campus newspaper, the Oklahoma Daily, picked up on Powell's remarks and asked the former Secretary of State what everybody else did not. Just what did he mean by terror industrial complex? We're spending an enormous amount of money on uh, homeland security, and I think we should spend whatever it takes. But I think we have to be careful that we don't get so caught up in trying to throw money at the terrorists and counter-terrorist problem that we're essentially creating an industry that will only exist as long as you keep the ter terrorist threat pumped up. The follow-up question was, do you see warning signs that this country is in fact headed in that direction? We spent a lot of money to put a lot of equipment out there, counterterrorism equipment, but now we need more money to keep that equipment running. Well, let's make sure that what we have sent out there is absolutely essential. And uh, let's be cautious in our appropriations and in spending money. I don't think we're out of control. I think we had to respond in an aggressive way. But it's now been six years. Let's make sure that we are spending money on the right things and not spending money just to spend money. Let's make sure that we are spending money on the right things and not spending money just to spend money. Halliburton, no bid contracts, not to mention all the Bush-Cheney cronies that had financial stakes in the very complex Mr. Powell warned us about. Well, what can a new administration learn from this two-year-old warning? To the growing chorus chiding the president to hurry up and decide about the strategy going forward in Afghanistan, take note. Beware of the terror-industrial complex. And my apologies for not reporting this to you in September 2007. The members of the Best of Left podcast are the wind beneath my wings. Their donations of as little as $5 a month are what allow me to keep this show on a steady schedule twice a week instead of just once as it has been in the past. In return, members receive access to the Best of the Left raw feed where they receive all of the clips that end up in the show, plus bonus material that doesn't make the final cut, and content in the raw feed is delivered in its original video format when available. If you appreciate the service that this show provides, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Maxine Waters has introduced legislation called the Investor Protection Act of 2009. It is simply put, the most logical piece of legislation I have seen in a long, long time. Because it's simple. You know, in the healthcare part, you can say, hey, you know what, that part's logical, but I got a problem with that part. There's a lot of moving parts. It's very complicated. But this is a very simple bill. It's almost impossible to disagree with. What she's saying is, hey, you know what, the people who own companies should have a say in those companies. Now, as a capitalist, who could possibly argue with that, right? See, the shareholders in public companies own the company, obviously, right? 
And then there's the management, the executives who run the company, and the board who picks those executives, and the executives pick the board. And I've often pointed out that that is an obvious and enormous conflict of interest when the board is supposed to overlook management, and the management picks the board, and vice versa. How does that make any sense? So she's putting together a bill that simply says, you know what, the shareholders should have more of a right to decide who goes on the board. To which I say, of course, they're the ones who own the company. Now you might say, don't they have a right to voice their opinion on who's on the board now since it's their company? Well, they do, but it's a different process, and it's purposely cumbersome and expensive. Right now, the way that the system is set up, the shareholder has to mount a campaign on their own, and then they could bring in other shareholders to their campaign, but pay for it out of their own pocket to mount that campaign, which makes it usually so expensive that it's prohibitively expensive for any one shareholder to mount such a campaign, and that's why it rarely ever happens. What her bill suggests is, why don't we make it easier for the owners to decide what to do with their company? So if they set up a regular process in which the shareholders have input into the board, and then that process is paid for by the company, because ultimately it helps the company when the owners actually run it, right? Or at least have a voice in who runs it. Now, I can't imagine that any conservative would be against this bill, right? I mean, this is capitalism at its core. They own those companies. Of course they should say who runs those companies, right? All my conservative Republican friends, you agree with me, right? Now, are you going to be surprised when I tell you? They are all against it. All the Republicans say, oh, no, this is an unacceptable bill. The owners should not have as easy a say in who runs their company as the managers who currently run it. And now, look, that is, it's in not 1% exaggeration. You go read it for yourself, okay? So now, why would they do that? The reason they would do that is that the current managers are the ones who hire the lobbyists who pay the politicians. Alan Grayson said on this program what I often say, except I say it a little broader, and he used the same exact words. The Republican Party has become a wholly owned subsidiary of corporate America. Now, he said it in regards to the healthcare industry, but it's broader than that. All of corporate America, but not the people who own the companies, but the people who run the companies. Bill Black wrote a whole book about it. One of the top economists in the country, one of the top regulators in fixing the SNL crisis, he said the best way to rob a bank is to own a bank, except it's a little mistitled. They don't, this, people who are robbing these banks don't actually own the banks. They actually run the banks. See, if they own them, they would care that the bank at the end doesn't have any money left, right? So, uh, what, uh, who are the people that are opposed to this, that are making the Republicans say, no, 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 we can't have it? Well, the Chamber of Commerce, which is, again, the same executives who run these companies. Uh, the American Bankers Association, shocking. Not the people who own the banks, but the people who run the banks. They don't want to be regulated, right? And then some of the top corporations in the country, Intel, Microsoft, Pfizer, Verizon. And so what is their complaint? Their complaint is, oh, well, this would cost the money, uh, a little bit more money to the company. Wow. Yeah. If it costs a little bit more for the owner to tell you what to do, okay, then it costs a little bit more. I mean, given all the tremendous costs and revenue that come into these companies, you're really worried about that cost? That's a comical complaint, right? Now, see, because it might be really expensive for an individual shareholder, but it's almost not expensive at all for the company to have an organized process in which 
they do this, right? So then the second complaint is, uh, I think, even uh, more comical. It, here it is. It impairs the board's functioning. Yeah, it impairs the board's telling you to do exactly what you want, right? It impairs your highway robbery. Now, it, what it actually does is that it has the board function properly, where the owners pick the board. It, I'm telling you, this is the single most logical piece of legislation I have ever heard. And then finally, their complaint number three is, quote, I love this, no compelling need to change the system. Oh, yeah, of course there's no compelling need to change the system. For you, because you're the one robbing all the uh, co corporations of the money. Now, look, to give you a sense of this, we had Dan Gross from Newsweek on talking about this. Right now, the current system is set up so that uh, these Fortune 500 companies, especially in the financial industry, they're taking 50%, not of the profits, of the revenue of the companies and giving it towards compensation of executives. 50% of the revenues. Best way to rob a bank is to run a bank. Okay? So, now, who are they taking that money from? Now, ultimately, it's the taxpayer when they crash, right? And so I'm concerned about that as a taxpayer. But as a capitalist, I'm more concerned about the fact that this is not how a free market is supposed to run. They're most doing most of the stealing from the owners of the companies. That's the shareholders. And Maxine Waters and Barney Frank and the House Democrats are trying to stop that highway robbery. And, of course, the robbers have, have objected. And <laughs> we have a political system in which we say, oh, really? What does the thief have to say about his thieving? Well, then, perhaps we shouldn't do it. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, and look, and finally, this is why I care so much about this legislation. Not just because it's uh, wonderfully logical, but because it's so important. Because this is one of the key elements to fixing our structural problem. Because, and, and I'll tell you why. Because, look, if you have a company like AIG, let's take that as an example. Uh, they are, are now in the tank for us for hundreds of billions of dollars, the United States taxpayer. So that means they're way bankrupt. They're insanely bankrupt. You can't get any more bankrupt than AIG. Now, if you owned AIG, that'd be a problem, wouldn't it? You lost all your money. Now, if the function, market functions properly and the government doesn't bail you out, etc., which was what happened to Lehman Brothers. They're bankrupt, they're gone, and nobody, and all the people who owned it uh, are out of luck, right? Now, you don't want that. But if you run Lehman Brothers and you don't own Lehman Brothers, all you care about is your short-term uh, profits that you're taking home, compensation, bonus, salary, etc. Okay, so you're, and then if at the end Lehman Brothers crashes, which it did, they don't really care. The top executives at Lehman already walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars apiece, overall billions of dollars. So the company crashed, who cares? See, this bill says the people who own the company have a say in who runs the company so that you, they have an incentive not to crash the company, not to kill the company, not to drain all the money out of the company and have it go under. This is absolutely critical to our capitalist system. If you care about capitalism, you care about our economy, and you're a true-blooded American, you're going to be in favor of this bill. If you're a sellout, lobby, lobbyist, horrible person, <laughs> then you're against this. This is a clear delineation of who's the guy, guy, good guys and who are the bad guys. And as usual, we have a very common answer to that. The good guys, in this case, happen to be the most progressive guys in the House that are trying to protect capitalism, and the bad guys are the entire Republican Party who are all against it.
What's driving the Tea Party movement? What's driving the the so-called grassroots of the right? And what has happened to the grassroots of the left? See, there's on the left, we don't have a Dick Army. We don't have a Coke Industries. We don't have a SCAFE Foundation. This, uh, from today's Financial Times, there's a picture here of this giant hot air balloon, the 80-foot-tall hot air balloon. The headline, right-wing, this is the Financial Times. This is a conservative newspaper out of the U.K., right? But, uh, by, uh, by the way, they have larger circulation in the U.S. than in the U.K., but it's right-wing activists fly in face of efforts to cut CO2 emissions. And the subhead, Americans for Prosperity, fast becoming a formidable force on the political scene. I got an email this morning from uh, somebody at Koch Industries, K-O-C-H, saying that yesterday I had attributed them to funding for a variety of right-wing sources, and they were not, in fact, funding any of those right-wing sources. And they referenced uh, an article, a, a, uh, an apology note in Think Progress, that essentially said that. And so apparently that's the case, although there is uh, apparently one that they're still with. This from today's Financial Times. Americans for Progress is partly funded by the Koch Family Foundation, an offshoot of Koch Industries, K-O-C-H, the largest privately owned U.S. energy company, and receives other corporate funding, including from ExxonMobil in the past. Mr. Phillips declined to give details of current funders. But they're describing themselves as... Uh, Mr. Phillips says AFP is merely a group of frustrated Americans promoting smaller government. You know, the, the meme here, and this is this giant hot air balloon. This is Americans for Prosperity. It's across the top. It says, expose the ballooning costs of global warming hysteria. Grassroots events organized by Americans for Prosperity. Okay, so here's the problem. In a world and in a time as even as hardcore conservative as Craig Shirley will come out and say there is too much power concentrated in corporate hands. In an era and a time when there's that much power and the only thing that can challenge that power is government. Consider this for a moment. Government brings into being corporations. It authorizes their existence. If you want to incorporate, you have to go to the Secretary of State of your state and file papers to incorporate. And the state has the power to pull those, that incorporation. But it essentially creates a whole brand new entity out of thin air, a legal abstraction, a corporation. Corporations are creatures of the state. And yet, at the same time, they have now gotten so large and so powerful as a result of a series of Supreme Court decisions over the years, they've gotten so large and so powerful that they're actually able to challenge the state. In an era when corporations are so powerful that they can destroy our lives, that millions of Americans are dying, that probably about 100 people will die during, during this program, from lack of access to health care because they don't have health insurance and they don't have appropriate health insurance or they're underinsured because we have a for-profit bunch of gangsters, a for-profit cartel 
that runs the health insurance industry in the United States, that has antitrust monopoly uh, exemptions, that in the midst of that, what do you want to challenge that corporate power? And this is the question I think that we need to start asking these conservatives. It's like they go on TV and they go on the radio and they go to and they and they do their town halls and they say we need smaller government. Okay, you get smaller government. Who's going to take on ExxonMobil? Who's going to take on United Healthcare? Who's going to take on Wells Fargo? Who's going to take on AIG? Who's going to stop the abuses? Who's going to take on the credit card companies? Who's going to take on the corporate polluters? Who's going to take on the people who are who are fouling our food supply with genetically modified organisms? Who's going to take them on? If not government, who? And they have no answer for that. And yet this meme has become so pervasive, this thought virus has become so pervasive in American thought and in the media. I mean, the media embraces this. Even Democrats are embracing this. As I pointed out, this idiot who ran for the governor, the Democrat who ran for the governorship of Virginia, everybody said, oh, it's a, he's the perfect guy. He's a conservative Democrat. What? He's a small government Democrat. Well, then he's not looking out for you and me. Because in an era of big corporations, in an era of transnational corporations, in an era where big corporations will play one state off against the other to get more tax breaks so that you and I have to pay more in personal income taxes so that they get not only do not have to pay taxes, but they actually get money from our governments to locate factories in, in, their, in, you know, in those states and things like that. In an era like that, the only thing that we have that stands between us and to, and to paraphrase Grover Cleveland, the only Democrat who was president during the robber baron era in the late 1900s, the, uh, between us and the iron heel of corporations, the only thing that stands between us and the iron heel of corporations is government. And Franklin Roosevelt pointed that out. Franklin Roosevelt called that out. The American people figured that out, and they said, you know, you're right. And he declared war on those corporate interests, and to a large extent, he won. There's no denying it. These are scary and uncertain economic times. Property values continue to plummet like a six-year-old out of a Mylar balloon. <laughs> Retirees are trading in their 401ks for a box of Special K. And the dollar has been slapped around so hard, it's asked the euro for a safe word. 
And we know, we know, folks, President Obama has been no help whatsoever. He is openly hostile to business. He doesn't even bother to say please anymore when he asks the banks if they would be willing to consider regulating themselves. <laughs> if that's okay with them. And of course, it is all the rage out there to be all the enraged at bank CEOs. Well, I say, instead of pointing the finger, we should be learning from these good men. May I point out that even in this terrible job market, bank CEOs all seem to have jobs? <laughs> they must be doing something right. Look in the mirror, unemployed. You know when you're sponge bathing in the bathroom of a Wendy's. <laughs> who, who out there will stand up for the bankers? Well, it turns out, a banker. <laughs> this weekend, Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein showed true Goldman Sachs in an interview with the Times of London. And folks, I was moved by his humility. Despite collecting the highest salary on Wall Street at $68 million a year, Blankfein never forgets that he is, quote, a blue-collar guy. I believe he is referring to the sapphire choker he wears on casual Fridays. It's good luck. It's an excellent look. And Goldman Sachs may have made a fortune selling subprime mortgage derivatives and then short-selling those derivatives because they knew the derivatives would tank. But Blankfein pointed out that they're just doing God's work. I have always believed that bankers are God's representatives on Earth. They're like the Pope, if the Vatican were incorporated in Delaware. And yes, and yes, Jesus did banish the moneylenders from the temple, but that's just because he knew they had to diversify. There's no future in rebundling burnt offering derivatives. So I say bravo to the people at Goldman Calf. Keep doing God's work. And it is nice to see that God's work no longer includes punishing pride, greed, vanity, or gluttony. week a miracle happened on Capitol Hill. A huge problem for the country, a multi-trillion dollar problem for the country, was pointed out, diagnosed, and prescribed treatment in a bill that was exactly two pages long. Two. 
It was by Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. It was called the Too Big to Fail, Too Big to Exist Act. And it said the government has to disclose which financial institutions it considers too big to fail, institutions that we think we'd have to bail out to save ourselves if they got into trouble. It then gives the government a year to break those institutions up. Quote, so that their failure would no longer cause a catastrophic effect on the United States or global economy without a taxpayer bailout. So in just two pages, even with really big print, look, there's your problem. Identified, diagnosed, and treated. Let's make it so a few giant corporations can't have our whole economy in a stranglehold anymore. Then we won't feel like we've got to use tax dollars to prop them up like some poor shopkeeper paying protection money to the mob. That little two-page bill makes a lot of sense to me. Probably way too much sense to actually get very far on Capitol Hill. But today, the big proposal for how to fix Wall Street and the financial system so the economy doesn't melt down again the way it did last year finally got introduced in the Senate. Barney Frank already introduced the House version. Now Chris Dodd has introduced it in the Senate. And the bill does give the government the power to break up institutions that are too big to fail. We will end for all time, I hope, too big to fail. Those words should only be used again in historical context. We cannot allow the collapse of a few firms to threaten the entire economy of our own nation and others around the globe for that matter. The new rules for Wall Street and the banks would also create a consumer financial protection agency. So in the same way that regulation keeps off the market things that when used as directed have a good chance of killing you, things like lawn darts or cars with the fuel tank right next to the bumper. Uh, a consumer financial protection agency would keep off the market, say, really bad mortgages that when used as directed are likely to blow up in your face as well. Are these bills from Barney Frank and Chris Dodd the end-all be-all for Wall Street rules? Will these prevent the shunting of all the financial risk onto the public while those doing the shunting never personally risk anything more than drowning in their own bonus money? I don't know. Surely these bills aren't perfect, but they are a start. And so, of course, the opposition is already lined up and ready to do anything they can to protect themselves and their profits and their profligate risk from any new constraints. You know, since that last period of them not having any rules worked out so well for them. The New York Times today noting that even before the new regulation bill was unveiled today, quote, it had encountered sharp resistance from Republicans and powerful business interests in Washington. Mr. Dodd has yet to produce a Republican who supports his plan. Moreover, several provisions will probably be opposed by moderate and conservative Democrats with ties to various industry groups that have raised objections to the measure. Even though the country just barely survived the disaster that the financial industry got us into, I suppose it's inevitable that that industry would even now fight new regulations designed to stop that from happening again. But as Republicans and conservative Democrats in Congress start lining up with corporate America uh, and against new regulations now, consider the alliance that they're making. Populist columnist David Sirota today made this catch from the business newsletter Inside U.S. Trade. This is a D.C.-based publication on trade issues. It's especially for people in international business. What else are business groups worried about and lobbying against other than the new Wall Street regulations? I wouldn't believe this if I had not seen it myself, but check this out. Quote, Business groups are worried by the potential effects of provisions banning the import of all goods made with convict labor, forced labor, or forced or indentured child labor that were included in a recent customs bill. American business groups are concerned, upset, 
worried was the actual phrase, worried about laws against using slaves and child labor. Quote, business sources say the bill could cause DHS to more actively seek out imported products made with child labor, forced labor, or convict labor. Oh no, how will corporations save themselves from that onerous rule that you can't use slaves and prisoners and children to make your products if you wanna sell that product in the United States? Darn that liberal red tape. Quote, sources conceded that this was a sensitive issue because industry groups do not want to be seen as opposing strict measures guarding against human rights abuses. However, one source did expect a push from lobbyists closer to the Finance Committee markup of the bill. Wow. I'm guessing that business interests are okay with something like this being discussed in a subscriber-only industry newsletter publication like Inside U.S. Trade. I'm guessing they might not want to let it become widely known that they are lobbying to stop rules against slavery. But actually, you never know. The Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank that has a very high profile, uh, that is very high profile in Washington, and that maintains all sorts of websites and educational public venues to promote their ideas. And on the Heritage Foundation's over-criminalized blog, the Heritage Foundation, too, singles out the Child Labor Safety Act, which levies fines and jail time for companies using child labor as an example of what they call trivial conduct that is now often punished as a crime. I mean, honestly, kids these days, in my day, we'd be delighted to be chained to the loom for a few pennies a day. For the record, the Heritage Foundation also singles out Neil Abercrombie's bill against war profiteering as another example of making something trivial into a criminal matter. Business interests and their think tank friends on the right have every right to lobby on anything they want to. Think that Wall Street, despite almost destroying the whole economy of, United, of the United States, should be left to its own devices again? You know, go ahead, make your case, I'd love to hear it. Think that child labor and slave labor and forced convict labor are cheap and therefore cool with you? Go ahead, make your case, I would love to hear it. But unless you're gonna make your case for things like that in total secrecy, know that the case against you is there to be made too. And that that will apply to any member of Congress who sides with you as well. You child labor endorsing pro-slavery freaks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, for anyone out there who listens to both this podcast as well as the Young Turks uh, podcast or their show on their website with any consistency, you're probably aware that the membership program that I have for the Best of Left podcast, which is helping to support the show financially, was wholesale ripped off from the Young Turks. I straight up liked their idea and took it for myself. So today, um, I, I have one tiny bonus clip uh, for, for the end of the show here from the Young Turks, and I just wanted to preface that that's what they're talking about. Is they're, they're thanking their members the same way that, uh, that I thank mine. And seriously, in all honesty, I really probably wouldn't bother playing this, except for the fact that he makes some other points that lead in to what I want to talk about next. Now, speaking of members who signed up earlier, I realized the, the guy that's still on the board who's never been thanked as a member, it's a top 20 guy. Mm -hmm. now, so the, 
the oldest member that has not been thanked yet on the air. Jay Tomlinson. And I can't believe we've never done that. Mm -hmm. Jay Tomlinson actually helps the show tremendously. He's the one that suggested that we go up for the podcast awards. Mm -hmm. And uh, guess what? We're nominated for Best uh, Political Podcast. Yes, we are. Hey. High five. <laughs> so, um, and Jay, by the way, is Best of Left uh, Podcast. He's also nominated for Best Produced Podcast. Now, we're going to start that voting on Friday, so everybody bring it down. I don't, I don't need you to be a DEFCON 1 yet. But on Friday, get ready to vote like crazy, because we're going to vote like till the end of the month. You know why? You know who's in the category with us? Who? Rush fucking limbo. Oh, no way. Here's what's not happening. No way we're losing to it. I mean, I'm going to need full TYT Army participation on it. Yes. That. Okay, so that's what's Absolutely. happening. And by the way, speaking of our podcast, I've been telling you guys this. Audio and video podcast now on iTunes. So go crazy on that. And uh, listening in car, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so there you go. That's you know fun for everyone. But again, in all seriousness, the reason I bring that up is to show that the Young Turks are really being supportive of, of our podcast here. And also to point out that they're in some stiff competition with Rush Limbaugh and the other uh, heavy hitters of the political uh, podcast arena in the podcast awards this year. So I just want to let you all know that they're being supportive of us. They're even sending out, you know, on their Facebook group when they send out their reminders uh, for everyone to vote in the podcast awards every day. They're also mentioning be sure to vote for the best of left as well. So I just want to uh, say that to encourage you all to, of course, reciprocate and support them. So again, every single day between now and the end of November, go to podcastawards.com and vote for the best of the left in the best produced category. It's right at the top. And then scroll down a bit and vote for the Young Turks to beat the crap out of Rush Limbaugh and all the other competitors in the politics category and then have some fun vote for any other shows in any of the other categories you like uh this american life is up in the general category and you know vote for them and and so on and if you want to you know find a way to stay more involved of course i have already suggested set a little alarm for yourself which i have done create a little bookmark in your uh in, in your bookmark bar in your browser just to remind yourself to go there things like that and uh and if you want me to remind you every day, I'm sending those out on Twitter and Facebook. So I don't have like a group set up where I'm going to send you an email, but it's more of a passive reminder. But if you want to follow Best of Left on Twitter and Facebook, either of those will get you those reminders every day or at least almost every day. Of course, I also want to mention the Best of Left podcast application for the iPhone iPod Touch. Everything's still going well. Reviews are still good. Uh, if you haven't picked it up yet, go ahead and do so. It costs two bucks, one-time fee, two bucks, uh, you know, what could be better? And of course, as I'm going to be in the habit of mentioning in just about every show from now until forever, uh, I just want to mention the bonus content that you can only get through the app or by being a member is uh, the, the bonus clip today is from Tom Hartman doing one of his uh, patented history lessons. And of course, it's on... Uh, economics for this show and he does kind of a, a history of the boom and bust economies um, and and really that's his specialty that's where he really uh, shines I mean Tom's great all the time but when you get him talking about a history lesson it's uh, guns blazing so if you have the application or you want to go out and uh, get it check out the bonus content for this show 
Now, I know this is a super packed end of the show. I don't want to keep dragging on. But of course, I have the huge news I teased in the last show, and I don't want to run out of time again. So I have to announce the very uh, good and exciting news that I will be going on a uh, business-related trip to Copenhagen for the international negotiations on climate change in December. So, first of all, that's exciting. Second of all, I'll be coming back with uh, stories to tell about that. And third of all, it's going to totally disrupt the schedule of the podcast. And, you know, luckily it's in December, because December is usually the month uh, in years past where I have allowed the, uh, the whatever regular schedule the podcast has been on. December is the month that I kind of let it go. It's holidays, you know, everyone's wanting to relax. Uh, politics are a, a pain in the brain when you're trying to have fun with your family. And, uh, and, and so that's going to be happening. I, I can't predict right now how many episodes will be produced in the month of December. It's going to be way less than eight, but some amount more than zero. And I just want to give you guys a heads up on that. No, nothing weird is happening with the show. It's just our regular um, holiday schedule is going to kick in and I'm going to take time off. And then the Copenhagen trip is going to kind of merge into that and, uh, and disrupt it as well. Sorry to say, but I'm sure you're all very understanding of that. Okay, now finally, I'm just going to thank a couple of members and then get out of here. Uh, Andres T uh, signed up on October 6th and uh, Rhoda G signed up on September 20th. Huge thanks to all the members. Uh, Andres actually signed up for a full year, so I, I like to point that out uh, when people are feeling extra supportive and they know that they want to support the show for a full year you can sign up uh, for a, a full year membership and actually get a discount on it you end up saving money and and being super supportive so uh, huge thanks to both of them and all the members who help keep the show going obviously i just couldn't do it like this without you guys and that's it for today so uh, support the show by telling five friends of course it's the most important thing you can do spread the word which reminds me i have you're not gonna believe it you're really not gonna believe it I have more gigantic news, but it's got to wait for the next show. I hate to keep doing this. This is like three shows in a row, and it's ridiculous. But I think I've, I think I've come through. I, th I think, uh, I think I'm earning your trust that when I say there's huge news, there's actually huge, huge news. So I'm gonna announce huge news next show. Hang tight for that. Obviously, you can support the show by becoming a member as well. It's less than five dollars a month, which is awesome. And then if you get the chance, leave a five star review for the show in iTunes. And also for the application, go, if you've used the app, go ahead and uh, hop into iTunes and review it. Let us know how you like it. And finally, links to the music and sources used in this episode and every episode are always posted right on the blog. If there's ever a song you want to find that you like, just go to the website. It'll be right there. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Thought I'd black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Not my life, it's just
It's the phone flower to a friend. 